Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to discover all of our previous episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at irish underscore tech news and on Facebook at facebook.com slash irish tech news. Thanks and enjoy the listening. Okay, uh, today on the podcast, uh, we have someone who uh, I was just chatting with that in the that we once ordered books from his bookshop about 15 years ago uh, in another <laughs> lifetime. Um, now we, we have the pleasure of we, we reviewed his book recently. Uh, and so it is Rob Hopkins. And the book was from what is what is to what if. So first of all, thanks for coming on, Rob. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for reviewing a book. You did a very flat and lovely job. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, but I think it's doing positive things. Um, I guess, first of all, for those who don't know about you and the various interesting things that you've done, how would you uh, just explain to people who you are and what you do? Always a good question when someone at a party says, so what do you do? It's like, okay, get, get a seat. This might take a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I was a permaculture teacher for a long time in Ireland, and then I moved back to the UK in 2015. No, was it? No, 2005, sorry. And uh, and I'm one of the founders of the transition movement, so which is which started here in Totnes, which is where I live now in Devon, in the mm-hmm. south of England. And that was really a movement exploring community resilience, community-led resilience. What can we do as a community to build new structures around energy and food and economics and so on that are in community ownership and that are more resilient and so on. And so I've been, I'm one of the founders of Transition Network, which was the charity we set up to support that. And so for the last 12 years or something, my work has really been around supporting the transition movement with blogs and films and books and talks and so on. And then about three years ago, I did a sabbatical for a couple of years to research this book about imagination. Uh, and my work since then, although I still work with Transition Network, I've been doing more and more stuff, which is developing workshops and additional things around this concept of we really need to focus on the imagination piece here. So I'm pretty busy. I'm also uh, in the town where I live. I'm one of the founders of a social enterprise craft brewery that we have, which was one of the first uh, 100% community owned breweries in the country and i'm involved with a few other projects here as well cool i mean and yeah craft beer is always a nice thing to have a stake in as well uh you can enjoy the fruits of your labor totally totally um so so we we, we read the book uh we reviewed it and i thought it was positive um in many ways, you, you wrote the book in, in in what would be seen as a, a, a lockdown COVID-19 way of writing it, but actually you stopped flying a long time ago. So um, maybe just talk about the, the process of putting the book together, because you spoke to a lot of interesting people uh, without actually, uh, you know, leaving the country to do so. So, I mean, now that doesn't seem so unusual, but I mean, how, how, how was the process of writing it with so many diverse people? It, it was kind of just how I do things for me like I stopped flying in 2006 mm-hmm. uh, when I was sitting in the cinema watching at the end of an inconvenient truth my wife and I turned to each other and said we need to change something we don't want to leave the cinema the same as we came in and we decided to give up flying uh, so the transition movement has which now exists in 50 different countries that has happened without me flying all around the world giving talks and so on and so on and we used we were using YouTube and uh, Skype, as it was then, pre-Zoom, uh, 
uh, for for ages, and 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 the um, the transition networks team is very distributed. We don't all work out of one office, so we've long developed ways of running good meetings online. So so this isn't really that big a shift. And the way that I like to 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 do research for something like writing a book is is to is to kind of share my workings out as I go along, to share the research as I go along. So when I was writing that book, I did more than 100 interviews with people all over the world. And as you say, didn't fly to see any of them. And then I posted all of those interviews as I was going along. So there was a community of people who were following that exploration as it went along. I, I, I'm sort of fascinated with the idea of things that we can do without flying. I bought a record last year by two artists who worked together one of them lives in Spain. One of them lives in Argentina, and they and they and they created this beautiful record together. Uh, and I think there's so much we can do. You know, I love the idea of th that we make films without anyone flying. That we make, uh, you know, we we we. If COVID has taught us one thing, you know, it's that that idea that somehow, in order for economic activity to happen, we have to be flying people around the world, and that you have to go to the Paris breakfast meeting, otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, you're this unravels or that academics have to always be flying the conferences in this country and that country is just an absolute nonsense and we can so harness these technologies to make sure that we don't actually have to fly ever really uh, and it's been one of the things that I've loved seeing during lockdown and during COVID is how much more confident and competent people have become. I've been to some amazing gigs on zoom i've been to some amazingly facilitated workshops conferences on zoom people using it really creatively and actually increasingly i feel like well why would i why would i spend a whole day traveling somewhere all of the expense and carbon associated with that just to go somewhere to give to speak for half an hour at a conference and then come all the way have all that time away from my family uh well i could just be here you know i think something really profound has shifted during this time in terms of that yeah, look, I mean, I hear you. And um, I certainly would have had that experience where, you know, we, we are in West Cork and to get to events, we would I would be gone for maybe three days, like you say, to do a half an hour talk somewhere. And um, what comes to mind is we recently read uh, Mike Bernie and Lee's book uh, about I think it's how much does a banana cost or basically that yeah. they measure everything in terms of CO2 emissions and basically the biggest and most simple thing you could do is to fly less because that's the biggest impact on what you do so uh, what you're saying definitely resonates um, with all of that um, and the last 12 months and the degrees of lockdown that we've had ha has the last year nudged helped the kind of things you've been advocating forwards or, or so ha what's the impact of the last year been on the 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 issues that, that you're trying to su support and promote i feel like in 10 years or something when we come to look back and to tell the story of how the climate emergency was tackled and addressed and the great kind of, um, you know, what Joanna Macy would call the great turning, what I would think of as, you know, the the time of transition, whatever this next 10 years, you know, if, if we are to stay below one and a half degrees, which still is far from perfect, but is the best case scenario we can throw everything at trying to achieve right now. If we are to be successful in that, it will, this these next 10 years will, have felt like one of the most extraordinary times in history. I always say to people, you know, it will have felt like living through a revolution of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Uh, and I think we, when we tell that story, COVID, the time of COVID will be a huge part of that story. You know, it was going like this and then COVID hit and there was this pandemic. And during that time, it became clear that actually the idea that governments can sit around a table with scientists who set out the most, uh, uh, the best evidence they have and tell them this is an emergency and you need to act accordingly. And the government say, right, shit, okay. Uh, okay, well, uh, well, uh, money is no obstacle. We will, we will throw what needs to be done. We will change what needs to happen. We recognise this is an emergency. That 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 idea that that for COVID in most places seems to have become how things have worked. You know that 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 becomes the way that we then work with climate change. I think we will have learned that actually the people in society that really matter are not the hedge fund managers and are not the, 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 the people like that. It's actually the people on the ground who are working. We will recognize that, that, that the kind of inequality that has been allowed to fester in our societies over the last 20, 30 years uh, and played a key contributing factor in people's vulnerability to COVID, uh, became a key factor for people. The fact that in the UK, 40,000 people a year die from air pollution, and air pollution is one of the key things that increases people's vulnerability to COVID, as does poor overcrowded housing, as does uh, uh, lack of space and lack of open areas and green spaces, led to a, a, a reimagining of urban space and what, and what land is for. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, by, by the end of 2021, I think it will have become completely clear all over the world that rather than just doing piecemeal bailouts of this business or uh, in the UK, you know, giving people 20 pounds off to go to a restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, a universal basic income makes far more sense as a strategy. Uh, I think it's a time when so many things that we were told were impossible mm. became possible really quickly. And the idea that governments don't do big bold interventions and that everything should be left to the market became really shown as the massive nonsense that it is and it and, and it really built the case for strong action uh that where, where where governments actually roll up their sleeves and get on with it so i i feel like you know i, I feel like in, in my own life i already feel like a year into covid i don't feel like the same person i was when i went into it and i think it's the same for a lot of people there is a lot it feels is kind of shifting around under the surface as well uh and uh and uh i think we will come back to look on it as a as a really quite a profound time and also the last thing to say on that is that of course you know i've spent years doing talks and workshops and stuff where i try to help people to imagine what it would be like to live in a world, in a low carbon world, because it's one of the big challenges we have is that people so struggle to imagine a low carbon future as anything other than sitting in a cold cave eating rotten potatoes, you know, and actually if we can, uh, and, and really helping people to imagine it is so important. And that's helping people to imagine the world where there's a lot less car traffic and the air smells really good and the bird song is much louder and there's a stronger sense of connection and more people are growing food and actually, here in the UK, we had uh, those two months, the first lockdown, 
uh, where we had that for about four weeks. It was a phenomenal period of time that people, people, most people loved the first lockdown. The second and the third ones have sucked, really. But the first one was really gave people a taste of something really precious. They had time and space. You saw a flourishing of imagination and people writing books and doing online art classes and uh, making videos of all their families doing these amazing dances and, and reading the novels they all wanted to read. And that was a really strong sense, I think, for people of, actually that was really precious and that was a taste of something that we need to build on rather than just move away from yeah look i, th I think you're right and and like you say uh, it kind of brought brought a temporary stop to things to allow space to reimagine things in different ways which is very much what the the idea that you're concerned with in your book and and like you say it does provide a period to cha challenge paradigms and say it doesn't have to be like that so uh, mm. I think that makes sense. Um, you also have a podcast, and you know, you it it looks interesting and positive. W what was the inspiration for you to do the podcast, and and how do you find it helps you to evolve your work and your ideas? Yeah, I never quite imagined myself really as somebody who was a who was a podcaster, I suppose. But I, uh, when the first lockdown hit, and I was thinking, well, and I, I lost a, a lot of the work I had lined up for the next three or four months, just mm -hmm. disappeared, kind of. And I thought, all right, okay, uh, what shall I do? And and I was interested in um, in starting thinking about maybe what the follow up to the book might be. I was interested in 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 bringing some people together to have some conversations that felt really important. Uh, I was interested in. Sorry, my wife's crashing around in the background. Is that okay? Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah. You, you can edit things, can't you? Anyway. Do my best. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the delights of working from home. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to do something which. You know, there, there was an activity that I started doing over the last year before the lockdown with, with groups, which I write about in the book, which is this kind of time machine exercise where I invite people to close their eyes and I facilitate this thing where they, they step forward into the future and take a walk around. And what's it like in relation to the, uh, you know, so and, and it's a really powerful thing is often people find it a really moving thing to do. And so I do a, a podcast that, that did that around some really big really interesting what if questions so we would have a so so the beginning of every episode i invite guests whatever our what if question is to imagine they travel to 2030 that's not utopia but it's the result of us having done everything we possibly could and then in relation to that what if question to to take us on a walk around it because it felt like a very different way to approach these things rather than just having a kind of an intellectual discussion and a debate about something you know should we have a universal basic income or should we not have universal basic income and what are the arguments and and that's that approach to it is really important but i thought well let's have a podcast where we say okay Eight years ago, a universal basic income was introduced. So what's mm -hmm. it like now? What's daily life like in a world with a universal basic income or a world where uh, we no longer uh, give more and more money to, to police and criminal justice, but we actually invest that money in, the, in poorer communities? What would it be like to live in that world? So it started out just as a, a kind of a lockdown project, and it's really developed a life of its own. And, and, uh, and a lot of people really enjoy it and it's been fascinating for me kind of curating who who comes on and 
the other thing that we do is is a kind of a bonus for people who subscribe to it through Patreon. They get an extra bonus episode called the Ministry of Imagination, where we imagine there is a thing called the Ministry of Imagination, and I'm inaugurating them as ministers, and they can suggest three policies that could be implemented tomorrow afternoon that would cool. massively accelerate our trip towards that. So all of it is really kind of starting to, it, again, it's kind of doing my research for the next book in public, uh and and i've really loved it it's been a great adventure yeah look uh I, and i think the great thing is is that it, it enables people to articulate maybe more than in a tweet or in a soundbite and you can go into things and also uh we find that people then get a better sense of the people who are behind the ideas so uh, it's just interesting to hear your take on it so yeah that's good uh, thanks um mm. i have i have a i have a dumb question for you but i remember in the second second half of the noughties there was a big a lot of discussion around peak oil and how we were about to hit peak oil so a decade later did, did we hit peak oil? What happened? Is was it was it overplayed or underplayed or where are we on that? Uh, I think it was um, well. I I think it was BP or Shell or somebody recently unveiled some figures that showed we did actually peak uh, quite a while ago. Um, I think the I think what the people, uh, myself included, who who promoted the peak oil kind of uh, concept underestimated was the role that unconventional oil and gas would play. So, so conventional oil and gas definitely peaked quite a long time ago now. But what what hasn't what what didn't peak was the the the, the technologies that allowed us to squeeze ever more uh, sort of lower embodied energy, dirtier oil and gas out of different things. I always think of the tar sands are a bit like. Uh, the fact that we are extracting oil from the tar sands is is really a sign of how desperate we are. It's a bit like being an alcoholic going into a pub and finding all the beers are off, but then kind of calculating that over the years there must have about 400 pints spilt on the carpet. So if you boiled up the carpet in a massive vat, you could probably get some beer back out of it again. You know, that's kind of where, where we've come to. So, you know, we always said in the transition movement at the beginning that it was about peak oil and climate change and that one of these two things was, gonna, was going to um, step in front of the other as being the most pressing issue. And uh, and actually, it was climate change that that, that really uh, kind of came to the fore. But I, but I still think that analysis that says, um, for whatever reason, whether because supply is going to be finite or because of the climate science, you know, doing anything that is dependent on fossil fuels is so twentieth century, and that includes airports, and it includes shopping malls, and it includes economic development models, and uh, that that way of thinking I I found really really valuable in terms of just developing an awareness of the fragility of the civilization that we live in and its economy, and how dependent it is on fossil fuels, and how tricky. The process of really getting away from them is because they they because they underpin absolutely everything uh but actually what happened over the 12 14 15 years of the transition movement i think was really that the, the climate change arguments really became by far the more imperative ones than the than the peak oil ones mm -hmm. yeah i oh, look i mean and i didn't want to spring it on you but i just figured you'd be a good person to ask <laughs> um so uh, with, with the alcohol metaphor moving towards um with, with with climate change and the issues we face, uh, but also in the context of 
the massive rise in renewables and uh, the fall in the price of renewable energy. Um, is, is the glass half full or half empty? We've, we've come up with a lot of great solutions, but we also have a, a very big challenge with climate change. So, so are you optimistic or pessimistic about make, making this, making an impact that, that means that we don't make the planet uninhabitable? Uh, it depends what day you ask me that question on, I think. And okay. it depends what <laughs> I've just been reading before. And, you know, whenever, whenever I get asked the question about optimism, I always like to say what Paul Hawkin said when he said if you're if you're if you're not if you if you read the, the science about climate change and you're not a pessimist then you haven't read it properly go back and read it again but at the same time if you've spent any time around the movements around the world that are trying to do something about it and you're not an optimist then you don't have a heart and that's kind of where i sit you know i i i feel like um if you were to look at everything on a purely objective really looking at the purely looking at the science and the data uh if this was a football match, you know, we're losing 3-0 at half time and we've been completely outplayed. And, uh, you know, but I watched Man United against Tottenham, whenever that was, 1999, I think. And, you know, Man United were 3-0 down at half time and they came back and won three. And, the, the, you know, the one thing that I know is that in that changing room at half time, Alex Ferguson didn't say, well, we're probably too late now i think we had it lads and uh i don't know we've got any chance here and uh it's definitely too late and i don't know why we should bother and let's just sit here and feel miserable about how bad the first half was you know actually we owe it to future generations to the people in this world who have less influence over our hands in it than we do uh to everybody to come out fighting and 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 that actually our ability to do that and the likelihood of us actually being successful i think really depends on our being able to bring to life how the future could be and and, and it's i always say to people you know I, I see the at the core of the work that i do is about longing and how do we create longing in our movements in our organizations in our politics uh because if we don't create a longing for a low carbon future it's not going to happen but once you create the longing, then it kind of becomes inevitable. And longing is not created through facts and figures and policies. It's created through storytelling uh, and imagination. And so for me, I, I, I feel like, yeah, you can look at it just on a cold, factual basis and say, well, you know, this is really not looking great. But all great stories in our culture start with from a situation, from a position that looks completely lost, whether it's lord of the rings or whether it's harry potter and under the stairs in the cupboard under the stairs at the weasley's house and and mm -hmm. through through believing that you can do stuff you learn more and more about yourself and that's really i think the journey that we're on so for me it's it, it's really about cultivating longing and you don't cultivate longing by by assuming defeat you cultivate longing by telling stories and uh, dreaming of the extraordinary world that we could still create if we did everything we possibly could yeah, so it, it sounds like you're basically saying uh, it's necessary to be optimistic, but with with a sense of realism with it. Um, your your book is very much about uh, interesting and inspirational projects and people. How do you curate your sources of information and inspiration? How 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 do you access and find out about these stories? Uh, just as tips for other people. Um. I guess I guess part of it is that I'm I'm Im immensely curious. I think curiosity is really a trait that we could all really benefit from cultivating. You know that that sense of uh, you know I I just love finding those kind of stories. And and mm -hmm. one 
I loved about doing the book was I was really determined at the beginning that it wasn't going to be a, a collection of all of the usual people who end up in books about climate change in you know? it. So I have to get Bill McKibben in there and have to get Naomi Klein in there and I need to speak to so and so and so and so. You know, actually the lovely thing about the process of creating that book was that only about twenty percent of people I interviewed I'd heard of before I okay. started. So I would read something and go, Oh, that's interesting. I must talk to them and then they would in the interview say well of course i learned about such and such from so and so and i'd ring them and then i'd speak to them and then i'd uh you know so and then there were just people because because again i i do my research in public as it were and i'm always sort of asking for people through the social media things that i do anybody know anyone who knows more about this or and so one of my favorite stories in the book which is the the story of the civic imagination office in uh, bologna in italy I only heard about that story about two weeks before the deadline for the book, just because somebody mentioned it. So I had a frantic two weeks ringing around everybody I could possibly find to try and get hold of the guy, the people who were running this <laughs> thing. So it was really a, it was really a um, just being open to to following things and hearing about things and following them up and. And that process still goes on since the book. And a lot of it now happens through the podcast. You know, I, I read an article by someone and say, I need them. We've got to, I've got to get them. And, you know, there's yeah. some amazing conversations that have come. Most of the people I interview on a podcast I hadn't, I, I hadn't heard of six months ago. You know, it's really a process of, of just of curiosity, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think that's the fun of it, of it. And equally, you know, it shows that there's a lot of good solutions out there. It's, it's not that we need to wish for things to be invented that haven't been invented. It's about just like you say, being curious enough to see what's already out there and then adapting it for our own local area. So, yeah, I, I hear you. And like you say, your podcast is people I haven't heard of. So it's interesting. Um, it's been very interesting to talk to you. How can people find out more about you and your work? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, so robhopkins.net is the blog that I do where you can find all of the interviews that went into the book, uh, from what is to what if, uh, so if you read the book and you go, Oh, I loved the bit where he talked to, he talked to, I don't know, Gabriella Gomez Mont or something. You can go onto the blog and you can find all of the interviews and usually a podcast of that. Uh, mm -hmm. if you find out more about the transition movement, transitionnetwork.org. Um, and if you're interested in the podcast, uh, you can few there's a few episodes that you can hear at robhopkins.net but uh, if you subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next it's just three pounds a month and you get four podcasts a month and extra bonus ones as well we had a we did an interview with Brian Eno uh, in December which was very exciting which was a one of the ones I do every now and then just for subscribers as a thank you cool. for supporting kind of a gift so yeah if anybody listens to this and wants to get involved it would be lovely to have you with us on that journey. Awesome. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to do the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and lovely to be in contact with you again after 15 years. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that podcast and we will be bringing you more across as diverse and interesting a range of stories as we can find. You're welcome to reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn or by email and give us any feedback and let us know what you'd like us to cover in the future. Thanks and keep listening.